And I remember after the, the, I don't know if it was, it was the second to last. So it's the fall semester of my last year in college, I did a project and he actually used it and he was the professor and he used it as an example of, of what not to do. And it wasn't because it was bad. He showed two projects that I had done and he was like, both of these are really good, but they're so different from one another. Like this person would benefit by figuring out a little bit more about who they are and what matters to them so they can make something good, even better. Like the subtext was it's not enough and it's not right. And it's not, shouldn't be a goal to be good at everything. You really want to figure out what you're great at and focus at it. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio, a podcast that talks with architects to learn how they use Apple products in the practice of architecture, with your host, Neil Pan. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Monograph is the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. Learn how Monograph can help you be more productive at monograph.com. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio. In this episode, I'm honored to have a Young Architect of the Year Award winner who is now a fellow in the American Institute of Architects. You might have heard of him as he's gained some notoriety as a blogger and now a podcaster. I'm pleased to welcome architect Bob Borson to the show. Welcome, Bob. Hey, Neil. It's good to talk with you and to see you again. Yeah, it's been a while. It has been a while. Darn this COVID. Traveling for conventions and conferences. It's it's hard to get together with people, all the friends you have around the country when you don't have those events that bring everybody together anymore. Yeah. It's definitely uh thrown thrown some of the annual get togethers off a little bit. Yeah. Uh, they're coming back. They'll come back. They will. They will. Look forward to it. Well Bob, let's start off by hearing about what inspired you to become an architect. Okay. So that's a I'd say it's an interesting question, but I don't know that I have an interesting answer. So the truth is, is I, I didn't ever think of something else that I would be. And I had the singular moment occur in my life that a light bulb went off and I went, I need to be an architect. That's what this, that's what I've been working towards my whole life. The truth is, is my dad, when I was around, it was Christmas of like when I was five years old for Christmas, he got me a drafting board, a T-square and a triangle to do drawing. And he was a, he was an engineer and I don't think that he was thinking architect, but he's like, Oh, well, I'll give you some drawing stuff. And I've told the story a few times. Like this was a beautiful piece of wood. I mean, it was probably 30 inches tall by about 34 inches long or something. It was perfect. It was the smoothest piece of wood I've ever held. And I proudly proclaimed that I was going to cut this piece of wood up and make a boat out of it. (laughs) which is ridiculous on many levels because like I didn't know how to make a boat, but for some reason, that's what I needed to do with this piece of wood. My dad was like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is. So he told me about it and like what it meant. And so that planted a seed in my head that I go, well, I guess that's what I'm, I'm going to do. I I'm going to draw with this stuff. And so that kind of manifested into my mind of becoming an architect. I didn't know that architects were a thing. I certainly didn't know that word when I was five, but between that and Lincoln logs and, you know, erecta sets and all that kind of thing. In my mind, I was going to make buildings and it, I just never wavered from it. So I, I'm not sure that inspired the right word more. Nothing dissuaded me from becoming an architect. Interesting. What prompted your dad to give you such a gift at five years old? 
you know, I guess maybe he had high expectations for me. Maybe I demonstrated, you know, a high level of critical thinking when I was five. I, I couldn't tell you. So that's what I got. Now, did you continue that, say, passion for drawing throughout high school? Yeah, you know, but it's different. So I took drafting when I was in high school for two years. Okay. And it was, it was, a, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put it. The, the teacher was actually the weightlifting coach and the defensive line coach. That was the guy who taught drafting. Super, super nice guy not heavily engaged in the actual teaching process. So we had gear and we'd sit in the room and he'd give us something that we had to draft, like draw this nut, draw this bolt, you know, and eventually we worked our way up to drawing like an oil derrick. We didn't draw houses or plans. There was nothing architectural about it. And I enjoyed the class, but I honestly, I never associated that with a stepping stone on my journey to be an architect. It was just all right, you draft. You just, I have, I have drawing tables at home. I got this drafting board. It's the same equipment. I guess this is what you do. The irony was when I got to college, they were very quick to say, all right, we need to unteach you all the things that your drafting teacher taught you in high school. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Interesting. So you went to the university of Texas at Austin. Why did you choose to pursue your degree in architecture there? I have another uninspiring answer to that question. Okay. So uh, having lived in, in Texas basically my entire life, all but like three years as a child, my older two sisters both went to UT. Every school I've been to, the mascot was a longhorn. Like I'm <laughs> talking from kindergarten through 12th grade. And that was, that was, I went to a K through three. And then I had a four through six, a seven, eight, and then a nine through 12. All those schools, the Longhorns were the mascot. Of. Okay. And, and my sisters went there and I went, so I guess this is just, I, here's what's stupid about it and how different it is. Cause we have kids that are roughly the same age. Yeah. With the process of us figuring out what school my daughter might go to started two years before she would get out of high school. I mean, she's a senior this year and we started dealing with this at the start of her junior year. And in some regards, it began even earlier than that. I never talked to my parents once about what school I would go to. Like they didn't help me with anything. There was the application process was completely different. I didn't have to write. There were no essays that you had to write. You basically just picked the school. And when you took the SAT, which is what I took, you filled out, a, you know, like a Scantron, a little bubble thing that says, send my results to these schools. I only selected UT. That was the only school that I had my score sent to, not having any idea if it was even any good school <laughs> to go to. I didn't know that you had to get accepted into the program as an incoming freshman. You know, a lot of, like, let's say you're going to become an ec economics major, a business major. You actually get accepted to the university, and then you apply to that school before your junior year. That's how that works. Architecture is not like that. You get that dealt with as an incoming freshman. Right. I didn't realize that it was as highly ranked and as competitive as it was to get into it, but I graduated seventh in my class. So they kind of had to take me at one level into the university. And I guess that wasn't good enough for them to accept me into the college. Very interesting. Okay. It sounds uh, similar to a story of, of how I got into college as well, but we're here to listen to you. Talk about yourself, not, not well, necessarily. Well, we me. can talk about you a little bit, but <laughs> I, I mean, our generation, I think you kind of fell backwards into the school you went to and yeah. in state schools, you kind of went to a regional school. I mean, 
not many people that not many people that I went to high school with went to colleges like all over the country. That was not really the thing. Everybody kind of went to the, to the big state school where you live. Right. Right. Yeah. Very similar here too. So one interesting tidbit I learned and I want to want you to touch on briefly is uh, while at uh, UT, you were a member of the marching band and jazz ensemble. Mm-hmm. What, what instrument did you play and do you still play? Uh, tenor saxophone is what I played. And I, I do not still play, even though I own a tenor saxophone. And so I was, I actually played a lot of different instruments. My mom was a music teacher growing up. Oh, and, um, and I had this weird evolution of instruments that I played because, uh, I, they started me on clarinet. This is not that interesting. Needless to say, I was, I was the only one that could play low notes. If anyone has been in band, they'll know what I'm talking about. When you first start playing reed instruments, it's easy to play high notes. It's really hard to play low notes. And I could do that. So there were like 10 people that played the clarinet and um, nobody could play low notes except for me. So I was playing third chair parts, which were like low whole notes. And it wasn't no melodies. It was boring. (laughs) So I wanted to trade up and I moved to bass clarinet, which was more interesting and then when I got to middle school, I wanted to be in the jazz band because my mom was something that she really interested in and uh, listened to a lot of that music. And I grew up listening to it. So I wanted to be in the jazz band. And the teacher told me, we don't have any bass. There's no room for bass clarinetists in the jazz band, which is not true for the record. That's not, that is not true, but it made me feel like I was missing out. So I taught myself how to play saxophone after my eighth grade, tried out for the jazz band as an incoming freshman in, in high school and made it. And then I was playing multiple instruments through high school. Interesting. Yeah, I was, I was good enough, but I think the reason why I was in it was it was important to my family, number one, but I was the only person in the school of architecture that was also in the band. And at the time, the university really used the band. It's the, I want to say it had the highest GPA of any non-elective for uh, any kind of curriculum, right? Meaning all the kids that were banned, they were all smart kids. Yeah. And so they used to ba- use the band to try to recruit other smart kids. So they would send the band out to all these places to play concerts. And at the end of it, they would say, Hey, if you have any kids that are interested in, um, in coming to UT, we have a representative of every college here in the band, except architecture school. <laughs> so I think there was some motivation for them to try to make that work for me, quite honestly, because I was the only one and I lasted three years and, um, and it was, it got to the point where I just couldn't do it because you've been in our, we've all been in architecture school. They yeah. would give you some assignment on Friday that would like, they would try to destroy you by, and have it due on Monday. Yeah. And I would have to say, Hey, I'm getting on a bus because we got to play Auburn this weekend. So I'm going to leave. And I'd say, I'm going to be out of town, like on, on school sanctioned activities. And I'm going to have a hard time making this deadline. They're like, we don't care <laughs> still have to do it. But I lasted about three years. And then I was finally like, I can't do it. I can't do both anymore. You got a little uh, burned out on that, huh? Well, you know, it's just, it, it was, it was just hard. You couldn't make the yeah. deadlines. And when you pin your work up and it's being compared to everybody else and you go, I, mine's not as good because I didn't, I wasn't able to put as much time into it because architecture school, if nothing else is more of a, a testament to your, your desire to produce a lot of work, not just yeah. good work, but a lot of it. Yeah. So was there a class or professor at UT that had 
an influence on your path that you took uh, in your career? You know, I had a handful of teachers that all kind of made a mark on me in one way or another. I didn't have one that stood out. You know, there was, there were three that kind of come to mind. One was a guy named Michael Benedict. One was a guy named Paul Lamb. And then there was a guy named Larry Speck. And they all happened at various points to where they got me to think about what I was doing and what my skill set was. And like Larry ended up being the person who sponsored me for membership into AIA fellows, mm-hmm. which was interesting years later. And he ended up kind of roasting me and he teaches actually the, the most popular course at the university of Texas. And this is a class called architecture and society. It's an amazing class. And it's one of the classes that if you're not an architect, but you want to get in the architecture school, they'll let you take that class. Mm-hmm. And so there are literally hundreds and hundreds. Of, there's so many they, that he teaches his class, several of them every semester, not just one. Wow. And, and I remember after the, the, I don't know if it was, it was the second to last. So it was the fall semester of my last year in college. I did a project and he actually used it and he was the professor and he used it as an example of, of what not to do. And it wasn't because it was bad. He showed two projects that I had done and he was like, both of these are really good, but they're so different from one another. Like this person would benefit by figuring out a little bit more about who they are and what matters to them so they can make something good, even better. Like interesting. The subtext was it's not enough and it's not right. And it's not, shouldn't be a goal to be good at everything. You really want to figure out what you're great at and focus at it. So that was kind of a a big moment. And then Paul Lamb was a professor of mine who really talked about like, like he used to say, you can't chew pencils and spit ideas, which I actually think was something that Alvar Aalto was quoted for saying once. But the idea that you sit at your desk and you work and you try and you, you sketch out an idea and it doesn't work and you start over that, that it's a grind. It's a process. You don't just sit there and stare off into space and get hit by inspiration. You know, it's, it's work, it's process. You work your way through it. And there was one project in, in, uh, in particular that I did with him that started off. I mean, I thought it was great, obviously. And, um, he kind of just made a couple of comments to me and, and it was, one of those moments where I went, I think I get it. I think I understand what you're talking about. And, uh, and I made a change. And ever since that moment, I, my design process changed. So he was, he was an important guy. So after that, where did you think your career in architecture would take you? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't have any, unlike now where people get specializations, like they come out being specialized in healthcare or something like that. That was not that wasn't a thing when I graduated, uh, in 1992 was when I graduated and the economy wasn't very good. The economy in 92 was really kind of what it was in 2009, 10, like, I mean, it was, it was not great. So you took whatever job you could get. You were, you kind of considered yourself lucky to have one to be honest with you. And so the job I got was we, it was a, it was one guy. My first day on the job was I moved him out of a closet in his house where he had been working into new temporary office space. That was my first day on the job. And we did kind of Genesis retail design, meaning we took a concept that somebody had for a new retail environment and we conceptualized it and then basically created a prototype that either we rolled out or somebody else would roll out. And 
the thing that was great about it, it was not great architecture, to be honest with you, because it was all interior. It's going into malls, you know, that kind of thing. I didn't have to worry about keeping water out. I didn't learn how to be an architect doing that job, mm-hmm. but I did learn about workflow and talking to clients and putting together proposals and doing billing when I was 25 years old. Yeah. Right. Cause he was only 10 years older than me. So he's, I'm 24. When I started working for him, he was 34 and we're out there killing the world, just making stuff up and doing it. It was a blast. And, and I loved it, but it, it was a grind because we were working 80 hours a week for three years. Last time it's like, I couldn't. Wow. So I moved on from that one, but that guy actually worked with that guy two other times over my career. Okay. Well, throughout the beginning of your career, you worked for a number of smaller firms staying at each for maybe an average of two years, three years at this first one, but why only two years at each firm? You know, that's actually a really good question. And that was something that if you'd asked me to answer this question, say 10 or 15 years ago, I don't know that I would have been able to tell you, I just got bored. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, oh. and, and one of the things that I think I've always been pretty good at is recognizing when I'm not where I need to be. And so if I work someplace and I felt like it's becoming repetitive or all I'm doing now is becoming better at what I'm doing, um, I would leave. And the truth is, is I would say out of most of the jobs I've had, uh, for that first, I don't know, first 10, 15 years out of school, I'm not doing the, it's not real math. I probably stayed maybe a year to a year and a half at most of them. Mm -hmm. Um, it was only until recently if I work my way backwards, the job I'm at now, been here for two years, I was at the job before that for six years, job before that for 13 years. And then everything before that point was like a year to a year and a half yeah. for my entire career. And what I found was there was this struggle. And I think all architects go through this. It's this kind of coming to terms with what you're good at versus what you want to do. You know, like you have this idea that I'm a great designer and you're not willing to accept that you're not a good designer for a while. Or you, you're a great project architect, but that's not what your interest is like, or whatever it is, whatever shoe you're trying to put on is not actually fitting, right? It's not what you should be doing. Yeah. And you change because you're, you're like, I want to be designer, but they don't give me design opportunities. And what you think in that moment is you're in the wrong firm because they're asking you to do something that you don't want to do when really they don't want you to do something that you're not good at doing. And you just don't realize you haven't come to terms with that yet. And for me, it took me a while to figure out that what I'm good at is I'm a pretty good designer. I'm good at communicating. I'm good at talking with people. I'm good at working and collaborating in team environments, that sort of thing. And I kept changing jobs to become a better architect. And every time I would change jobs, they're like, we don't want you to, I wanted to learn how to detail, to keep water out of a building, Neil, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And I would go to someplace to learn that. And very quickly they would say, we got other people for that. And they would want me to be in front of the client. They'd want me to talk and they'd want me to give presentations. And I go, I'm never going to get licensed doing this stuff. And I felt that I needed to change. And finally, I just kind of accepted the fact that that's what I'm good at. And, and I've kind of leaned into it since then. And now it's what I love. Okay. So is that what kept you at that firm for 13 years? You said, yeah, a little bit. So that was actually the first residential firm that I worked at. And when they brought me in, there was an interest in, cause I, I hadn't ever done residential work and it's a different world altogether. And so there was this, like, it was a small firm. So I got to do everything and mm-hmm. I got to design 
And I really liked the people that were there. Like it was a good fit. Um, and the truth is, is if they had ever, we had talked about getting my name on the door. That was important to me. Uh, in fact, when I interviewed, I asked them two questions. I said, one, can I become an owner? And two, can I get my name on the door? Because if the answer to either of those questions were no, it's, I'm not going to be here. That's, I don't want to come here then. Mm-hmm. And they said, yes. And while I was there was when that recession in 2008, 9, 10 kind of came through. So that kind of put a giant pause in the middle of it. And we kept talking about it, but nothing ever happened. Finally, I had a call uh, from the guy where I did go and get my name on the door. He just called me up and said, hey, I want you to quit your job, come here, and let's work together, start a business. And that's what I was missing from that that 13-year firm, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have to go ask to be a partner and an owner. I wanted them to offer it. Like people underestimate the the how in, how incentivized being asked to do something to join in how much more powerful that is than when you have to request it it's a huge difference and you know it's one of those lessons that i've learned that i apply in all all tons of facets in my life now like i try to get people involved in doing things by asking them before they feel like they have to step up and and request that to happen to them right well you just mentioned you next got your name on the door. Take me through the process of leaving the firm that you were at for 13 years and moving into a principal role. So it was hard leaving that firm. They were mad and sad and there was crying and, you know, probably by everybody because everybody liked each other. It wasn't, it wasn't a leaving because I felt like they had done me wrong or I was bored or didn't like the job. It's just, I wanted to move into an ownership role. And for one reason or another, that hadn't happened. And I still remember there was this moment because I didn't go to them and say, Hey, this person has asked me to join their firm, put the name on the door, the whole shooting match. Uh, what are you going to do about it? I didn't go to them with that. I just said, this guy asked me to do it. I'm doing it. And they were, they were hurt because they're like, well, why didn't you talk to us about it? And I said, I've been talking to you about it for five years, right? Like this is, this was not your moment. Your moment has come a hundred times the previous five years, nothing's happened. So I don't want to force you into doing it. So that's, that's part of what made, and they were fine. I see them all the time. We have great relationships. It's very cordial. It's very respectful because I I think highly of Um, the difference between where I was that the 13 year firm versus the one I moved to was very little. Uh, I got involved a little bit more into, into the running of the firm, not much, you know, not Mm -hmm. much. I started doing more, more of the billing, like I handled billing, but the biggest thing came. Now I had a responsibility for actually selling work. Mm. You know, part of the idea is, you know, there's a a very, it's a very distasteful way of putting it, but you, you know, you have to, you have to earn your own way. Like, yeah, if you can't sell enough work that brings enough revenue to pay your salary, like we're not going to keep you here. That's what pays your salary is your ability to bring in work. Yeah. And until you're in a position to where that's what you have to do, you don't really know if you can do it. You know, I felt like I'd been doing it before, but it's different when your name's on the door. What I found out, it's a lot easier when your name's on the door than when you're just, you know, one notch below the people whose names are on the door. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of surprised that um, as soon as I went out and said, all right, I'm here. My name, I'm one of the partners and my name's on the door. 
I didn't even have to do anything and projects started to come in, which was great. So that, that turned out to not be as hard as I was anticipating it to be. Interesting. Okay. Now, did you rely on some of your past experiences or past clients or to bring in some of that work or did you branch out and find new work? No. So most of the work that I got actually came in as a result of the blog that I write. Okay. Um, and it was, it was people who had been like, they needed, an, and here's the thing that's interesting, right? So blogs are very to year 2000 to a very large extent, but I made some decisions about how I was writing it and who I was talking to and the way that I kind of put the information together. And I didn't hold it out as a, as an online portfolio, you know, there was few finished pictures on there. It was very helpful. It was very responsive. It was engaging. People felt like they knew me before they ever met me. Okay. And so when people started to think, I need an architect, I found this guy. I read a bunch of his articles. He seems like a nice person. He seems like, you know, he knows what he's doing. And then they would set up an interview and they'd walk in like, like they already knew who I was. They right. already had a feel for my personality. And since I'd made the decision at that time, not knowing if it was going to be a good idea or not. I was going to present myself as close to who I really am and not try to come off smarter, you know, or more clever. I'm like, I need, I can't fake it. If this thing is successful and I'm going to do it for years, I can fake it for a while, but I can't fake it every week and everything I do. I can't do that. Right. So, so my, my personality comes through and I, I almost take it as the best compliment I can receive is when people meet me who have read the blog, they go, you are exactly the way I thought you would be. Okay. Right. Which makes me feel pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Of course they say you're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> That's only behind your back, Bob. That's all. That's right. That's not to my face. <laughs> so earlier in your career, you did some more commercial work, but for a number of years, you were doing all residential work. Now your next job change took you to a very large firm, a hundred plus people and an opportunity to again, work on a variety of non-residential projects again. What was the thinking in making that change again? Well, you know, it kind of harkens back to the first 10 years of my career. Uh, I kind of got bored. Okay. You know? I mean, I still like the people. So where I left, I, I pretty much on one hand, other than how much money I made, I had control over every single thing in my life where that mm -hmm. job was concerned. I had control over staff. I had control of what projects I took on, how I did them, how I rolled them out. I mean, it was really that, that office was kind of set up and there were two of us that sold the majority of the work. I did my work and he did his, his work. He never worked on my projects. Occasionally mm -hmm. I would help him out on his. Um, but for the most part, we just kind of drew from the staff in the office to do the work. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was great. And I, I loved a, a great deal of my time there, but I started to become a little disenfranchised because I didn't like the business direction of the way the firm was. I thought this is never going to change. Like, like, I don't like the decisions he's making, but he's completely within his right to do what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't like it, I don't like it. It's his company. Really? I mean, he's the one he's, he can make all the, all the shots. So I decided eh, maybe this is not I got like one more move in me, Neil. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I, you know, when I made that change, I go, I'm like 50 years old. I don't want to have 
three more jobs before I'm done. Yeah. I want to, I want to go somewhere. And one of the things that I had learned over the last 10 years, and you know, the blog was really helpful and kind of cementing this personality trait that I have. I really like talking to people and I don't mean just like blabbing with people, but yeah, I like, I like teaching. I like talking about what it is we do. I like trying to convey some kind of theory behind why we start where we start and how we get to where it's finished. I like teaching people yeah. and, and I've, I've learned that I'm pretty patient and my, my personality is already predisposed to you asking me what time it is and me telling you how to build a clock. Right. I mean, I'm already kind of built that way, mm-hmm. but coming to a big firm where they, they want me to be a disruptor. They want me to go, why are we doing this? Like, can we do this better? Or what if we do this? Or what if we do that? And so one of my, one of my friends is one of the owners at the firm where I'm at now, Boca Pal. And I started talking to him, not with the idea of coming here, but just do I, do I have a skill set that would translate to a larger firm? Mm-hmm. And just through natural conversations, he ended up going, I really think you ought to come here. And this is the kind of stuff that you could possibly do. And what's great about it is I don't really have a defined role here. I kind of get to do whatever I want. So it's, it's really like being in an office of five people again, but I have a hundred people here that, that okay. are here to help me and prop me up and I can lean on and they can lean on me and I can walk over and sprinkle design fairy dust on that job. And I can go teach this person how cantilevers work and how they impact the budget. I mean, it's a great job for me. So looking back on what you thought the profession was when you graduated from UT, how has the reality been different than you might've thought it was back then? You know, this is a wildly, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I don't think that I, and this is something that this is one of the failings that I think the, the education of an architect has, unless your school has built into the process, like you going and working someplace. Mm-hmm. I don't know that many people coming out of school really have a good understanding of the differences between practice versus school. You know, the, especially the school I went to UT, they kind of have an idea that, well, everybody here is super smart type, a perfect uh, type, a alpha personality. We're going to teach you the things that they're not going to teach you in the profession. Because as you know, our profession is built on you learning through, through kind of an internship process, right? To get licensed, you have to work in the industry a certain amount of time to, to in a certain amount of areas to get experience before you can complete your, the licensing process. Right. And so UT looks at it and says, we're going to talk color theory and met and all these design related things, keeping water out of the building. You're going to figure that out that the professional will teach you that after the fact, right. Mm-hmm. Or you'll just piece it together. That's kind of how they took it. So when I got out of school, uh, what I was equipped to do was stand up in front of a room of people and talk concept and party diagrams and, mm-hmm. and conceptualize those were the things that I knew how to do. I had no idea how buildings got built. Yeah. And that took me 15 years to really figure out. And partly because they didn't want me, they, like I said earlier, they, they didn't want me to be the guy doing flashing details. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just different now. Now, like we get interns every year in this office and they're wildly more savvy about the profession than I was in 92. Now it seems like most schools have some kind of process. People getting jobs in architectural firms while they're still in school seems to be far more common 
than it was when I was in school. Yeah. Is it also to a reflection of the internet in general? There's just way more information, blogs like yours out there oh, yeah. talking about what the profession is like that you can learn while you're in school or even before you go to school. Oh, absolutely. You know what? I, that really should have been how we led off that answer, quite honestly, because now someone's ability to do research on, like I get emails from parents who go, Hey, my kid's in sixth grade. And he's thinking that maybe this might be something he wants to do. Can we set up a call with you and talk about it? Or, I mean, I get, I mean, people are really on board with this early. I'm right. amazed at how early they started to figure out. I still remember on the first day of class when I was in college and it was that same professor, Larry Speck, he said, uh, I want you to write down a piece of paper, your five favorite architects. I couldn't even come up with five. I couldn't tell you the name of five architects and I'm in architecture school. Right. Day one. I think I came up with I am pay and Frank Lloyd Wright. That might've been it. Yeah. It's shocking to me because now I got sixth graders that like know my name, right? Because they get on the internet and I'm easy to find and they know the names of Yark Ingalls. And I mean, it's, it's so different now. The internet has kind of really opened up what this profession can be, which is why I've been advocating for 10 years that more architects need to talk about what it means to be an architect to people who aren't architects. Yeah. I want to touch briefly on your involvement with the AIA. Over the years, you've been heavily involved in AIA Dallas, serving as chair to a number of committees and boards. You were named an AIA fellow almost five years ago. What did that honor mean to you and what effect, if any, has it had on your career? So that's a very uh, kind of gracious question. It makes me sound amazing. But uh, the reality it is, is I made a lot of friends on the AI. That involvement when I worked in a small firm, that was how you got to meet people and see what other folks were doing. Because we were kind of in a, a bubble, our own little tiny bubble of, you know, a handful of people doing our work. And so being a member of the AIA allowed me to like sit in on committees. And what I learned early on was like how much of an impact you can have as a person on those committees to really use them to, to do things the way you want to do them. Now I remember, so there's a really big on on a drawing competition called the Ken Roberts Memorial delineation competition. It's the biggest drawing competition in the world. Longest running. I think it's been going on for like 40 years. And that was one of the very first committees that I chaired and it's, and it's actually run out of Dallas. And I would imagine there are architects all, all over the world that submit drawings for this competition now. And when I sat on the committee for the first time, it was a cookies and lemonade in the Dallas chapter AIA office sort of event. And, and I was like, this, we can make this way better. And that was back in the day when the budget you got was based on the amount of money you could raise. Right. So I would call up, or Micah. And I'd say, Hey, we're doing this thing. It's going to be really cool. It'd be great if you could donate a couple thousand dollars. And so I would, I would just pound the streets and raise this money. And then it would allow me to say, you know what, I'm going to rent a place where we're going to have this and we're going to have a party and I'm mm -hmm. going to get kegs and we're going to have food and we're going to get the, the judges to actually speak. And I want to meet Mark Mack. So I'm going to make him one of the judges and fly him out here and put him up in a hotel. And it was, it, all of it was in com completely self-serving on my part, mm -hmm. but it, it showed me that when you get involved, just how you can shape the direction of things. 
And most of my friends and most of the people I knew and most of the jobs that I got, I found out through connections I'd made through the AIA. I mean, that's kind of what it exists for in a lot of ways. Getting nominated to be a fellow was, was kind of shocking. Um, it was something that I had identified in my early 30s that it was something I wanted to do because I'd always thought being recognized by your peers uh, for being good at what you do was a big deal. I didn't know what that really meant other than sounds like that's what you should aspire to. If you're going to do something, having people that do that same thing go, wow, you're really good at it. That, that seems like that's a high watermark. Mm-hmm. So, so I mentioned earlier that Larry Speck was the person who nominated me. Really all that came together because I started the blog. I got nominated and elected to fellows because of the blog. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had to do with, you know, at the, at the high point, there were over 4 million people coming through that website a year. I mean, I would, I would say as a single person, I had the biggest reach to talk about architecture on the planet for a couple of years. That's pretty amazing. And when you think about the, there's only about a hundred, 110,000 architects in the United States. Right. And I, I have almost that many people a week going through my website. I'm not just talking to architects. I'm talking about architectural enthusiasts, people that want to be architects, just, it was a big deal. And they yeah. recognized me for, for doing it to which I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more grateful. I didn't yeah. change the trajectory of my career, honestly, because I didn't set it out to get that award for doing it. It just kind of, it's funny. That's how awards seem to work. You kind of fall backwards into them, right? Yeah. It's like, if you, if you scheme to win it, I'm sure there's some people out there that are clever enough to make it happen. I wanted it, but when I started doing the blog, it wasn't even on my radar screen. Right. Right. So. All right. Well, let's take a short break. And after we're going to talk a little bit more about your Mac and Apple product experience, and also about this little side project you keep talking about uh, called Life of an Architect right after this. How do you manage your firm? Are you using dated and clunky software? Are you frustrated using spreadsheets and never really getting a clear view of the status of your projects? Then I'm happy you're listening because inside the Apple Studio sponsor Monograph can help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets, and you can do it all in real time. They have a feature called Money Gant, and with this awesome tool, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget on a project. Along with their new tool, Resource, which allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget, you can easily adjust your projects on a week-to-week basis. Monograph makes this easy. So help support Inside the Apple Studio by checking out Monograph at monograph.com. Be proactive with Monograph. Welcome back, Bob. You've shared your career path and where that's taken you, but we've skipped over this little side hustle, which you've mentioned a few times, this blog that you started in 2010 called Life of an Architect. For listeners who are, who are not familiar with Life of an Architect, explain what it is and talk about why you started it. All right. So Life of an Architect, uh, I'll tell you how it came to be, and then we'll take it from there. So it was actually Christmas break of 2009. I'm sitting in the front room of my house with a really good friend of mine who was an attorney. 
And his job was actually teaching other attorneys how to use emerging technologies to do their job better. And he said a sentence, and I've told this story so many times, I could probably, I'm probably saying it word for word, but he said, hey, just subscribe to the RSS feed and put it in your Google reader. And I was like, one, what's an RSS feed? Two, what's a Google reader? I had no idea what any of that stuff was. And I had this moment where I felt I was too grounded. Like I was back to just getting better at at doing something that I already knew how to do. And these emerging technologies were going to pass me by and I was going to wake up one day and be irrelevant. And I had this huge concern over like, what am I doing? I need to, I need to make sure that I'm current. And so, so I did a deep dive into what RSS feeds were and what Google reader was. And I decided that I was going to start this, start a website, which was the life of an architect website really as a, as the vehicle to just learn how to do these things, like create the device that would force me to learn how to do some coding and get better at Photoshop and work on writing and work on being able to tell a story in less than a thousand words, which I've never done. And I still can't do it, but so I started it. And what's funny is I fell backwards into some really, really good decisions that probably would made or break it. Right. Well, so when I chose life of an architect, again, the reason I chose that one was because that same professor, Larry Speck, because on day one of that architecture society class, he says he walked on stage and he goes, I'm calling this class architecture society because architecture, I, we're going to talk about architecture and society means I can talk about whatever else I want, right? <laughs> Which was kind of a funny way of putting it. And so when I decided to come up with life of an architect, it really had to do with, cause I'm an architect and I'm going to talk about what I do, but the life part of it gives me the latitude to maybe talk about how, how I see the world impacts how I live in the world through my job, like, because I'm an architect, these things happen, but they're of a personal nature or they're like, like, it's hard when you live in a house and you're an architect and your house is garbage and like, you know how to make it better, but you don't have the funds to do it. You know, these kind of, I'll tell these kind of anecdotal stories and choosing that as a, as a title, this was really kind of prophetic because it is exactly the Google search term that people want when they find my site. Like the number of people that want to know what it's like to be an architect, boom, there it is. It's almost literally the name of my website. Right. So I experienced a great deal of success early on. And I'm pretty sure that if I had not experienced that success, I would have learned what I needed to learn, felt like I should check the box and I probably would have moved on. Yeah. But it skyrocketed up in the amount of people and traffic and, and, and I'll be honest, I, I, I was flattered that people all of a sudden cared what I had to say. I, it, it, it was it was empowering to my ego to feel like I wasn't just some guy in the next cubicle over. Yeah. And I'd never had that moment in my life where like, really, if I'm being honest, people caring, you know, um, that it's, it's disturbing and it's, and it's uh, invigorating at the same time. Um, Cause it started to become embarrassing and started to become a source of, uh, of, of stress for me. Because people would say, oh, they'd come up and they go, oh, I read your blog and da, 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 da. I'm like, look, I'm just some guy. I'm just a dude. I'm just like you. The only difference is I started writing it about yeah. it and you didn't. That's the only difference between you and me. And they're like, oh, that's not true. Like, oh, it really is. In my mind, it's really how it was. And for a while there, 
I don't know if you knew this, but Andrew Hawkins, good friend of mine, someone that Neil knows as well. Yeah. He reached out to me when I was writing it. He and I met because he was reading the blog and he liked it. And it got to the point to where, and people used to make fun of us because we're, we have very similar personalities in, in a way our humor is and like our, our ability to uh, find humor in the same kind of behavior. And I started having him really, he would hang out with me during conventions and his job really was to pull me out of situations that were uncomfortable for me. Like if I was getting too much attention, he would say, Hey Bob, we got to go. Yeah. And he performed a, a role that honestly, I, I wouldn't have made it. It was too much attention, you know, and got to keep in mind, this is not me going to the grocery store and getting bothered. This was yeah. me going to national conventions where I'm like hundred percent of the people there were probably people that would like, that's, that's the target demographic in a lot of ways. Right. So, so it was really great. Good for my ego, helped my confidence a lot, helped me develop some skills that, you know, and it, and it allowed me to sell work. I mean, it changed my life at, at every, every measurable way possible, but at the same time, it also became this source of discomfort and unpleasantness and a sense of obligation that at times became overwhelming because I was getting 200 emails a day from people asking questions that quite honestly were reasonable questions. Like somebody should answer that question and they don't know who to ask. They can't find anybody. Right. And they're like, I want to be an architect, but I don't know what that means. Or I'm not good at math or this way. Can I still do it? And I felt like it was my job to say, yes, you can do it. And so I was spending probably at least another 40 hours a week, uh, between writing blog posts and responding to emails and, and it just, it just, it drained me, but I owe, I really owe almost more than I can recount to that decision to start writing the, the blog site. Right. Now, when you started writing this, you were writing it on your Mac. I was. Yeah. And I'm curious, how did you first experience using a Mac and why did you choose that when you started since you were using probably a PC and your day-to-day life. I was. Well, Macs are beautiful. I mean, as an architect, you can't help but look at them and appreciate what they look like and how they perform. And all you hear is just how much graphically better they are than PCs. And, and they're just, everything was better. Everything was better. Yeah. The edges, like, you know, every consideration they put towards how they were designed and how they functioned was, was better. And so it was something that from afar, I, I would, I coveted. It was a big deal. I really wanted one. So finally, uh, I, when I started doing the blog site, I was spending a lot of time after hours on my couch, you know, writing these posts. And so I needed a laptop. So I had yeah. to buy one. So I go, this is my opportunity. So I'm going to buy one. And I didn't do it right away. I think the first one I bought was in, was a 2013 MacBook Air. I think was the first one that I bought. And I loved it. It was great. Trackpad was just like on point. I didn't even need a mouse. Like I, I still, I bought a mouse to use on my Mac. Never used it because that yeah. trackpad was so great. I used that one so much that I started having problems with the keyboard. Like keyboard started sticking, and you know, and the hard drive got full pretty quick right. because, and you couldn't replace them at that point. Like you couldn't upgrade your. So right. I ended up buying a 2015. And actually, and I, I still have that one. And now I, you know, now you can upgrade the hard drive. So I actually took it apart and replaced it myself and I still use it. The problem that I started having, and I know this is something you want to talk about a little bit was I was carrying two computers around everywhere. 
and it it got to the point to where I don't use my MacBook so much anymore. Yeah, partly partly because it's 2015, and they're they're really expensive. Like what I want is going to set me back like five grand. They're not yeah. cheap, and I kind of go, I can get a lot of the same things for like two thousand dollars on a PC, and I don't want to carry around two computers anymore. Right. I don't want to carry around two cords and all the, and now, you know, Macs are constantly changing their cords and what you got to plug in and this thing plugs into that. Now I have like redundant cords all over the place. It's a pain. Yeah. Um, but I do wish I have people in my office that they, they float between PCs and, and Macs all the time. They do it. They work on PCs here and they go home and work on their, they use boot camp. I guess is what it's called. Yeah. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your experience of being between using a Mac and using your PC in the office. Well, you know, it's, it was very church and state, right? So part of the reason that I kind of kept two for as long as I did was I made the decision early on because I was working for other people when I was doing the, the website and I wanted to make absolutely sure they understood that this was my content. I owned it. So I didn't want to use any of their equipment. To like, like, I didn't want them to say, Hey, you have to take all this stuff down because you know, it's our stuff. And I go, no, they're all my photos. I wrote everything. I used my own equipment. I used my own software. That was really important to me. So I could, no one ever challenged me on it, but I, I made the decision early on that I wanted to be above reproach where that was concerned. Sure. That they didn't even have the ability. And since I coveted the Mac for so long, that's what I used. And I probably wrote on my Mac for about seven years. Like I was probably, I spent a lot of time on that. Yeah. Um, it was great. I still love it. Um, and, and in fact, you know, you'd mentioned, um, I did a lot of my podcasting on it. The first, I'd say the first, I think we're on like year two and a half or whatever. Actually we might be year three. We might've just passed three years. I don't even know who can keep up with these things but I only recently switched off of Mac to do my, uh, my podcasting as well. So Bob, what other Apple products do you currently use? You know, I kind of got them all. Um, I have an iPhone that I use and I like it. It does everything. I need. We have Apple watches in the house. I don't have them, but not because I don't want one. I, 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 I want one badly to be honest with you, but I don't wear watches. I don't wear anything. Actually, I've been married 20 six years and I don't wear a wedding ring. Uh, I don't wear watches. I don't wear necklaces. I don't, I don't wear any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I still want one sort of thing, but yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I have, I have two MacBooks. I have the iPhone. I still have, you know, all the little, like, in fact, I, I probably have like my, all my old iPods and the nanos. I, I have all that stuff. Yeah. It's still around. And I think one of these days, my, uh, I'm going to pass away and my daughter's going to find it and she's going to go, what's on this, you know, and it's going to be 60 year old music. (laughs) She'll get a kick out of listening to the stupid stuff I I put on there in 1992 kind of thing. Yeah. And something else I wanted to touch on, um, that I think we, um, skipped over earlier was your workflow for the blog and what sort of apps were you using? when you were working on your Mac to do that? You know, I wasn't using any uh, kind of native apps for, for like, you know, I mentioned Evernote, 
right? Yeah. Which I know a lot of Mac people use. I never learned how to use it. Just it wasn't intuitive to me having spent so many of my formative years in a PC environment. So the software I still used was all the Microsoft suite of stuff. That was, you know, everyday kind of stuff. But the yeah, the actual software we used for the podcast was Audacity is what we used. And, okay. And, you know, you can get it for both platforms, but yeah, you know, it worked great. And it, and it's, um, you know, it's funny. Andrew has, has talked a little about, he was a, he has a bunch of apps that he thinks are big for, I have a bunch of apps on my phone, and, but I still don't know if, if they're specific to, to Mac products, but right. Yeah, that's about it. Okay. What was your favorite thing when you were using your Mac and in general, all of your Apple devices, what's your favorite thing about them? Well, if I, if I can't say the aesthetics, right, because that's kind of low hanging fruit, right? Okay. It's just, they look great. And of course they, they, something that someone in my line of work would appreciate. But I will tell you that I did love the trackpad. And it sounds like such a stupid thing. Like, like there's so many other things that would probably be more awesome, but I've never had one that worked as good. Like even the little things, like it's perfectly placed where I want it to be, you know, like, like the, the laptop that I use now, the number of times I'm typing and just my thumb hovering above the trackpad moves the cursor. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm typing something in my cursor somewhere else. And I got to go fix what I type because things are moving around that sort of stuff yeah happens more than it should and i never had that problem on my macbook ever interesting like i i covet that that feature yeah wish i had it back well i appreciate you sharing your apple and mac experience but before we wrap up this part of the show i want you to share one app or utility or service that you found most useful when you were using your mac you know the thing that was and this is a bad answer because the truth is, is I don't use a lot of apps. I, I, I wasn't savvy enough to like go, Oh, here's this utility that will do these things for you. I, I don't know any of that stuff. Um, but I will say the one thing that I found most useful was it still had this very appealing plug it plug and play aspect to it. Yeah. That all the things that I did use when I stuck them together, I didn't have to do anything to configure it. It's just kind of like, okay, we know what you're trying to do. So if I was plugging my phone into my, my MacBook, it just, it knew what it was doing and yeah. I didn't have to go in there and set a bunch of garbage up. That part of it, I love. And from what I understand, that's becoming a bit more challenging now than it used to be. It's not quite as plug and play as it used to be. But back in 2013, when I first started, if it didn't have that functionality, I'm not sure how my experience would have gone moving forward because that was everything you heard about as a non Mac user prior to that point. All you ever heard, one of the things that all Mac users lorded over PC users yeah. was like, you just plug it in. There's two cords. You plug in this cord here, you plug in that to the wall and you're done. Everything's figured out. You don't have to worry about your printer. You don't have to worry about it's you're done. And uh, that was something that I think every PC user coveted because that was not the case where Windows was concerned. PCs themselves. Right. Okay. Well, now on to our final segment, the 10 questions. So our first question is, what's your favorite word? Oh, God. So I got these questions, Neil, and I was like, what is Neil doing here with these? So, <laughs> I, you know, I almost go, I almost want to make you answer them too, because favorite word, I go, I don't know that I have a favorite word. Like I go, does it, is it the word I say the most often? You know, maybe like nice, 
Nice is a word that I say a lot, okay. but I say it in a way that's kind of like nice. You know, there's like, there's a, there's a way that you say it that makes it have a different value than that's nice. Yeah. Right. Cause you don't say that's nice. You just say nice. Yeah. It's short. It's sweet. It's emotive. It's nice. It's nice. You just, you just go nice. So somebody shows you something, you're like, Hey, check this out. You just look at it and go nice. <laughs> like everybody gets it. Right. So what's your least favorite word? You know, if we try to keep this, you know, at least family friendly, uh, Are you, you can be cr- non-family friendly. We'll just bleep it a little. I know it's not as fun that way. You know, the, I was trying to think what's my least favorite word, but there was one word that immediately came to mind. I don't know that it's my least favorite, but the fact that it popped into my mind first, I go, maybe means something. It's the word creamy. And we have a donut store close to where I live. And the name of the business is hot and creamy donuts. I was like, that sounds so unappealing to me. (laughs) I don't want a creamy donut. Just there's something about it. Nothing that's described creamy, I think is improved by being creamy or, you know, I'd say class is another one. Like if you say something's classy, I go, as soon as you describe it as being classy, it is no longer classy. That's how I think about that word. Okay. So what's turned you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? All right. So I'm going to approach the answer to this one very cautiously. <laughs> so I thought about that. There are two things creatively that I thoroughly enjoy, you know, and I'm, that's how I'm going to approach it. What turns me on creatively. And that is collaborating with people and then laughing while we're working. Like I take my work very seriously, but I don't feel like you have to be droll in order to you know, go through that process. So if I'm having a good time with people while we're collaborating, that's the best. Right. Next up, what turns you off? Okay. What turns me off is people who simply wait for you to stop talking so that they can tell a story that they clearly thought about a while ago. And they've just been waiting for their moment to tell that story, whether or not it still makes sense to tell it. Like, you know, we've all been around and you can see that somebody's just, they're waiting for somebody to take a breath so they can jump in and start talking. And sometimes when they finally have that moment, the point they're making, we've, we've left that moment in the past. Yeah. That, that drives me a little crazy because you know, they didn't hear anything. Once they decided, here's the thing I need to add to the story. They didn't hear what anybody else had to say at that yeah. moment. So what sound or noise do you love? You know, I have to say uh, side splitting laughter. And I, I got, that seems like that's, that's the only right way to answer this question because it's the sort of thing that if you ever hear it, it fundamentally changes your, your life in that moment. Like when you hear someone who's just dying laughing, you'll start laughing. Like you're ready. You don't even know what they're laughing about, but it's so infectious that you're ready to join in on it. Like you can't help it. Yeah. People laughing is uh, infectious to me. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, I should say vacuum cleaning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know what, but in the spirit of how I answered what sound I love, the sound that I hate is yelling, arguing, that sort of thing, whatever you call it, you know, it sets my teeth on edge. You know, I would imagine people might answer this question, like, you know, nails scraping on a chalkboard or some such, but there seems to be like a disturbance, uh, in the hum of space 
when anger and hate, like if people are just yelling at each other, it like destroys this kind of karma. This I don't know how to describe it without sounding like I pray to moon rocks, but um, <laughs> it just it takes the takes the joy out of a room. I don't like that. So here's the next fun one. What's your favorite curse word? That's an easy one for me, actually. And it's mother effer. Okay. And it's normally preceded by you dirty. And then I say that word. Uh, and you know what? I told a couple of people that I was going to record this with you today that you asked this question because I'm like, what's your favorite curse word? And when I told people mine, they're like, oh yeah, that's totally your favorite. <laughs> I don't, I wasn't aware that I say it so often that people know that that's my you know, like my, my go-to curse word, but apparently I say it often enough. So, okay. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Okay. So this was, this is what's interesting about that question. You said attempt, right? If like part of me goes, if you said, if you weren't an architect, what a profession would you rather be? Right. The answer would be chef, right? Cause that's actually what my backup plan was, but it makes me feel like I should answer. If it's a profession I would like to attempt, it'd be things like, you know, mountain sculptor, you know, like, but how many Mount Rushmore's are there? Like there's, <laughs> it should be something bombastic if you're attempting it. Sure. Um, you know, stunt plane captain or, you know, something at crazy. Yeah. Um, but now the, the real answer to that is chef. That was, that's what I, if I wasn't going to be, I'd end up doing. I'm not sure how well that would have worked out. I'm a little tall to be slightly hunched over 36 inch countertops. Yeah. So my back hurts if I stand at a countertop for too long. What profession would you not like to do? All right. So I would rather not disparage an, an entire segment of the population by saying like that guy would, I'd hate to do what he's doing. Like make that guy <laughs> feel bad. But I will say that um, installing a roof when it's 105 degrees outside seems pretty brutal to me. Yeah. So like, I look at those guys and I go, that is not for the faint of heart. So I don't think I, I don't think I'd be up to the charge of, of putting in asphalt shingle roofs when it's, you know, which we get here in Texas. And I look at those guys and I thought, how do they survive that? Quite honestly. Yeah. 160 up there where they're on top of these black shingles. Ugh, that is brutal. I do not want to do that. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? How about I've been looking forward to your arrival? Excellent choice. I have another answer, but I don't want it recorded. So <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave that for the after show. <laughs> right. I have a much, I, and I've told people what my answer was, and I got a lot of laughing and a lot of eye rolls. So, okay. But you guess at what that answer could have been. Sounds good. Well, Bob, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. Please let the listeners know where they can find you online. Yeah. So uh, thanks for having me. First and foremost, it was nice chatting and I appreciate you uh, actually making a show just to talk about me as much as uh, part of me goes, I wish we could have spent more time talking about you because it's fun when we get to do that. But if people want to find me, um, the website is really straightforward. It's just lifeofanarchitect.com. If they want to find me anywhere else, you can just search my name, Bob Borson, and it'll be easy to find top of the google list not a lot of bob borsons out there so. <laughs> <laughs> well thanks again bob for joining me i appreciate it 
No, pleasure's mine, Neil. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank my guest, Bob Borson, for joining me and Monograph for their support. Learn more about Monograph at monograph.com. Would you like to support the show? The best way is to tell a friend and show them how to follow the show in their favorite podcast player. Then leave a five-star rating and comment in Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at N-P-A-N-N or the show at Apple for Arc. That's Apple, F-O-R-A-R-C-H. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com. There's no way you don't hear that. I thought I heard something. Well, he's so where I sit, we have like five pods down this entire swath. Yeah. Right. That's that whole length of the building. Yeah. He is. He's like in my pod. But he's going down. You know how these guys are. Have you seen him vacuum? It's like he's going to vacuum 8,000 square feet in like four minutes. <laughs> like it's not he, he's not it's not a high quality vacuuming job. Right. Right. Um, so they normally don't come in here so early. I thought we'd be able to get through eight, but I don't know. You want me to keep trying? He's at the other end now. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to squeeze yeah. one in. All right. So since we're just talking about non-related subjects, uh, what's up with the beard? How do you manage that in the heat and humidity of Texas? Oh, it's not that bad. No. Well, you, you get used to it, right? Okay. Just, it's hot. I mean, I'm hot, but it, I just, what are, what are you going to do? It's hot. Yeah. So, so, th- so I didn't shave. First off, it takes me a month. This is like one month. I have this. It takes me okay. no time at all to get. Wow. Okay. And um, so part of what, what happened is, so one Christmas I didn't shave on Christmas break. And, Cause in my lat that office I was at where my name was on the door. Yeah. We shut the office down for two weeks between Christmas and new year's. Wow. So I might not, I might've gone three weeks or something without shaving. So it, I mean, it was, it was straight up beard. Yeah. And that was the year that I was, I got asked to sit on a panel to talk about the labor shortage, skilled labor shortage at the, the national association of home builder and KBIS show in Orlando. Yeah. And on the panel with me was me. And then the entire cast of this old house. Oh, sh- and I'm like, why am I on that panel? Like, yeah. I couldn't figure it out. I go, don't you think Norm has enough star power? Like, why am I here? You don't need me. Yeah. But I think they wanted an architect, right? So, okay. they, so I was on the panel and um, I, I've never actually really told my wife the story, but she's the reason why. So I'm like, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not a stargazing type of person. Like somebody famous walked in. I don't know. Pick a big, that's Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise walked through here right now. I'd go, what's Tom Cruise doing here? Yeah. And that'd be about the end of it. It just, it doesn't phase me. But those guys were, you know, when I was a kid, that was the only kind of construction related show that was on TV and it was on PBS. Right. And I felt that as an architect or someone who wanted to be an architect, I felt like it was my duty to watch that show. Yeah. So those guys were the closest to heroes that somebody like me has. And so sitting on that panel with them was, I mean, I was starstruck a little bit. I was like, God, don't screw up. You know, like I want to be friends with these folks. Yeah. So I shaved and my wife is notorious for hating facial hair. She's never held uh, like, she's like, Ugh, facial hair is disgusting. Right. But when I shaved, she goes, Oh, you shaved your beard. And I was like, yeah. 
uh, I thought you hated beard. She goes, no, actually, you know, I liked it. She goes, it hid this. <laughs> it, hit, it is hiding lower my fat, chin, <laughs> my fat throat, apparently. Uh huh. So now I, uh, so now I have it and people don't know me without it anymore. So I kind of feel like if I shaved, I would just look fat. <laughs> I don't know. I keep telling myself if I ever lose, if I ever get down to fighting weight again, I might shave it off just to shock people. There you go. I still think I look kind of young, but the white hair and the beard doesn't, that makes me old. No fight in the white hair. You've had that for a while though. Now I've had white hair for decades. Yeah. But, but you know, it was people used to think I dyed it when I was in my twenties and thirties. Cause I, I still, I looked young, but I had yeah. white hair. And they right. thought that I dyed my hair. And I was like, oh, it's <laughs> what a color is. Yeah, it is what but it now, is. But now with a, a little bit of the wrinkles and the bags, you know, and that kind of stuff. And I'm not losing my hair. Like, I'm, I'm, I haven't lost any. Which, by the way, I should say congratulations. I actually saw your post about how you had run 365 consecutive days. Yes. I, I divided that. And you've averaged over 5.8 miles a day. For 300. <laughs> I added this. And I was like, that's staggering. That's amazing to me. Congratulations <laughs> to you on that. Thank you. Uh, it didn't start out as a goal. It just was a kind of a pandemic thing. And it was something to do each morning, go out, get a run in, sit down at home and work. And, you know, otherwise I'd weigh 300 pounds or something. Oh my God. I mean, everyone's put on weight during COVID. It's booze weight for me, to be honest with you. I, I've put on <laughs> 20 pounds. Oh my goodness. No, I mean, that's not really true. I think I've lost only because I run a lot just because my motivation, Bob, is I don't want to gain weight. Yeah. I'm telling you. How long does it take me? Um, 40 to 45, 50 minutes, depending on how, how, you know, like four to five miles, about 45 minutes, 40 to 45. Yeah. That's still impressive. I, I miss, I didn't actually put on 20 pounds. I put on six, six pounds during COVID. Yeah. Okay. All right. The last four months of last year, I started getting like within striking distance of 2000 miles in a year. And I, I came up just short. I, I think it was 1,945 miles at the end of last year, the calendar year. Yeah. And just enough where you couldn't go pound it out one weekend. No, like, you know. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just a little too much. And I think uh, the last day I ran didn't run was August 28th. And as I kept progressing, I was like, I wait, I ran all every day in September, October, November, and then into December. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is pretty good. I'll just keep doing this. And then the next thing I, you know, it's coming up on summer and I'm two or three months away from completing an entire year of running every day. And it's like, well, now I'm just going to keep going. Now you have to do it. It's still amazing. Yeah. Huge feather. Some days, uh, my son got interested in, um, I think he had to do some presidential fitness tests at, towards the end of last year and of his uh, school. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to uh, get a little better cardio. And so we went out and ran the track at school a few times, you know, after school, late in the afternoon, but I had already run that morning. Yeah. So I'd run in the morning and then go run two or three miles with him after the, you know, in the afternoon, Nice. you know, but that was much slower. So that was a bit easier. <laughs> well, nice. I appreciate that. Thanks for yeah. doing the math on that. <laughs> of course. Of course. All right. So how's our cleaning crew doing? Oh, they're gone. All right. 
Perfect. Until they start vacuuming. So. Okay. Well, we'll try and wrap up before they do. I'm, I'm getting near the end here. So now I'm trying to remember where we kind of left off. Well, you kind of, you either want to start either. Do you mainly use your Mac for blogging and podcasting and what applications you kind of asked that one? The next one was that we didn't talk about was what other Apple products do you currently use? That's right. That's right. Okay. 